But gather our attention together and I'll pray and ask God to uh, lead us through the uncertain waters here of question and answer that it would be really profitable for us. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your enablement in these days and your wonderful grace poured out and the great truth that we can stand on in your word and how worthy it is of being loved and believed and heralded. And I pray now that you would guide which questions get asked and put words into my heart and mind that would be edifying and strengthening, that would enlarge our hope and strengthen our faith and deepen our love to you and make us more radical in our obedience and our commitment to give our lives for the spread of the kingdom. Draw near and guard us from the evil one and any alien thoughts or feelings that he might try to sow. And may we be borne along by your Spirit and may Christ be magnified in this moment. In Jesus' great name, amen. I have no agenda, so go ahead, shoot, and whatever you want to, you can, you can talk about what we've been talking about or you can talk about something totally, totally different. And if I don't know what to say, I'll just say I don't know. I'd like to phrase it kind of a two-fold way, if I can. Uh, the first is, uh, in your spiritual life, if you can categorize, what would be like five or ten most influential books in, your, in the cultivation of your spiritual life and, and growth? And then, can you give a little background as to the uh, development of your book, Desiring God, and sort of some of the factors that uh, emerge bring that? Wow. That's the, that's the last question. <laughs> the question was books that have been influential in my spiritual development and pilgrimage and, and then some background to Desiring God. Um, the Bible is the most important book in the world and in my life, which is obvious. Uh, after the Bible, I would say the most influential book is The Unity of the Bible by Daniel Fuller. Next to that, I would put a whole array of Jonathan Edwards. I would probably start with The Freedom of the Will, and next, The Dissertation Concerning the End for Which God Created the World, and next, The Religious Affections, and then Original Sin, and then they just sort of all fade together after that. Um, I think everybody should do what I did in response to Lewis Smead's Council 20 years ago, he said, uh, every young aspiring pastor theologian should uh, find a hero and uh, read enough of him so that you become his peer. That is, peer in the sense of you know his thought well enough that if you, if you sat down with him for lunch, you could carry on a good conversation about most of what he thinks. Uh, you've got to read a good bit of a man to do that. And uh, you can pick Luther, Calvin, Augustine, Edwards, uh, Owen. I mean, you can pick Wesley, too, if you want. But uh, <laughs> And it wouldn't be a, a bad choice, necessarily, because, you know, the Arminians of 200 years ago were a lot more, a lot better folks than the Arminians today. I think they were radically given to God. They were serious about theology. They were passionate. Where today, uh, 
the people that seem most serious about theology to me seem to be reformed people. And the others, it's not so much that they come out with wrong conclusions as they just don't seem to care very much about theology. They don't seem to be theologically driven. Uh, well, that's getting off on, let's see, books, books. Uh, and then, and then just the Puritans. Uh, Owen's book on the death of death settled for me at least at this stage in my life, I read it about uh, 12 years ago when I was trying to decide, am I a four-pointer, can that be, you know, and the death of death, and then his, his practical books on the mortification of sin and on temptation and communion with God have deeply enriched my life. Martin Lloyd-Jones has been a contemporary feeder for me. I don't get much help spiritually from contemporary books. I have to go back a ways because they seem to be so blood-earnest, as Thomas Chalmers says, whereas contemporary writers seem to be so flippant and glib about almost everything. You know, even when you open a book that has a big, fancy, embossed gold god on the front of it, the first thing you read is, once Mary said, and they tell you a little anecdote or something, you know, and it just, it's just, a, you breathe another world when you go back 300 years, and that's where I, that's where I get fed as a pastor is going back. I'm sure there's lots more that would come to my mind if I gave more thought to it. But let me jump to the, the other question. Desiring God, um, somebody asked me for at supper last night, it's, the book is now eight years old. It was published in 1986. I revised the mission chapter about halfway along the way so that the statistics there would be a little more up to date. They asked me, um, does, does this book still represent what makes your juices flow and do you still stand by what you wrote here? And I say, anybody that comes to my church and wants to know who I am and where my ministry is going and what the heart of my theology is, I say read Desiring God. It is still who I am and where I'm going. It's, everything grows out of Desiring God. Desiring God and the pleasures of God are like... Uh, the same question asked from the top down and the bottom up. Desiring God is asked from the bottom up, where can I find uh, fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore? And the answer is given in Psalm 1611 at the right hand of God. And the pleasures of God asked from the top down, where does God find pleasures forevermore? And it's the same answer in, in God. So it's, the, it's just asking the same question, one from from God's perspective and one from my empty perspective down here and there so that in a sense I say in the preface the pleasures of God could have come and perhaps should have come theologically first because God's delight in being God is the foundation of my finding fulfillment in God. If he didn't delight in being God I would have no treasure at all. But that's just not the way my life worked. I... I perceived my own emptiness before I discovered God's fullness. And so that's the, that's the way the books emerged. Um, the, the key influences that, that went into the making of Desiring God were C.S. Lewis, especially his, his little book, The Weight of Glory. I recommend that little book, four sermons in it. And the first sermon there, and the first page of the first sermon was an epic making afternoon at Vroman's bookstore on Colorado Avenue in Pasadena.
I just was standing there, a Lewis fan all through college, never had seen this little book. I picked it up and read the first page, and I'd never been the same since. And basically the page said, we are far too easily pleased. And the problem with humanity is not that they pursue their own happiness, but they don't, they don't pursue it nearly hard enough. They settle for mud pies in the slums when they're offered a holiday at the sea. That's the sentence I remember most clearly. And, and everything in me cried, yes. And I've been trying to work out that system ever since called Christian hedonism. Um, C.S. Lewis, then Jonathan Edwards. I, I, I read a paper at the Yale Student Fellowship or something a few years ago. Was Jonathan Edwards a Christian hedonist? And I tried to get it published in uh, Evangelical Theological Society Journal, JETS, Journal of Journal. And, uh, <laughs> and it was the last thing I've ever submitted to a scholarly journal because I got back from my friend, Ron Youngblood, the editor, said, uh, this is jejune in places. Jejune? How many of you know what jejune means? <laughs> it's not complimentary. <laughs> I think it means silly or childlike or or foolish or something like that. And he said, he said, you need to make it sound more scholarly. I never even touched it again. It's in a file cabinet at home. If somebody asked me to lecture on Jonathan Edwards someday, I'll pull it out again because he is a Christian hedonist. He is. And I, I, there are quotes. There are, you read Jonathan Edwards' uh, miscellanies on happiness and joy and uh, so Jonathan Edwards is the second influence. Dan Fuller, uh, who is a contemporary embodiment of Edwards for me, uh, was another great influence. And then missionary biographies. It is a great irony, though not an irony if you know your, your Pauline theology, that the people who have suffered most for Christ speak in most lavishly hedonistic terms about following him. It's the missionaries who've suffered most who talk most profoundly about their delights in God and who say, I never made a sacrifice. Well, maybe that's enough on that. Lots more can be said. It is now published, the Dan Fuller's... It was, when I read it 20 years ago, it was a syllabus. It's gone through numerous revisions, and now, 1992, is published by Zondervan. It's called Unity of the Bible, subtitle, God's Plan for Humanity, or something like that. I think it ought to be in every one of your libraries. It'll give you an alternative to covenant theology. From a seven-point Calvinist perspective, the sixth point being double predestination, and the seventh point being, O Felix Culpa. This is the best of all possible worlds. So don't think that when you're reading the book and you see places in it that look like not the way an ordinary covenant theologian Calvinist would talk, that you're dealing with an Arminian. You are not dealing with an Arminian. We're talking mega-Calvinism with Dan Fuller but you will not find the covenant of works. It doesn't exist in his or my theology. You can ask about that if you want to. <laughs>
Go ahead. Um, given the strength of reform theology, where is the weak link in terms of the fact that the practice of mission and the Buddhism? The question is, um, Where's the weak link in Reformed theology with regard to missions and evangelism? I don't think there is a weak link except in the heart of the theologians and the pastors and people. I don't think it's in the theology. Not if it is a biblically balanced Reformed theology. Uh, what... What seems to happen is not that the theology has structures to it that would inhibit evangelism or missions. In fact, to me, they enable confidence in evangelism and missions. What happens is that the kind of soul that gets attracted to Calvinistic thinking tends to be a certain kind of personality who loves doctrinal thoroughness and some precision and therefore tends to spend a lot of time developing that precision and making sure his people grasp that precision and suddenly you realize after some years he hasn't done much practical. He hasn't done much besides try to make sure his people get the refined system down and that when he says this, he doesn't mean that. And when he says, I really don't mean that. And he's so concerned on Sunday morning to make sure they hear that he's, what he's not saying because the Bible is very careless in its Calvinism. I mean, many, many Arminian-sounding sentences. Many sentences that look God like he's depending on man. And men, I mean, the Bible is not nearly so worried as most of us are, that people are going to misunderstand. I mean, Jesus says to the rich young ruler, when he says, how do you get into heaven? He says, keep the commandments. He's not worried about writing a quick dissertation about, oh, I don't really mean law, you know, I mean legalism. Uh, and, and just write down the line, the Bible is not so worried about that, whereas Reformed people are the kind of personalities who do worry about that sort of thing, including me. I write books about it, you know, to clarify what I think and keep others from misunderstanding. And the danger is, I know loads of little Reformed churches, especially Baptists, little Reformed churches, and they don't grow. And they don't have any passion for the lost. They're so, got their eyes out for every doctrinal mistake that their whole energy is consumed with making sure that anybody who darkens the door of this church knows, by the way, we're Calvinists. You want to stay? <laughs> that attitude will not grow a church if there's not this, just this explosion of exaltation in what we've got. Then it will go. So I, I think it has more to do with the kind of people we are, and our fearfulness, and our sin, and our preoccupation with certain things than it is the system. The, the system of Jonathan Edwards-type theology is not a missions-killing, evangelism-stopping system. It's just that we are that kind of people. We're, we're fearful. We're self-centered. We're uh, cold-hearted, precisely. There's, the, the, for some reason, well, I guess it's not too hard to understand, 
if you devote long hours and much energy to careful intellectual descriptions of biblical truth, it, it tends not to result in heel-clicking, dancing, hand-lifting, voice-lifting joy on Sunday morning. It tends to result in lecture-type expositions that are well-guarded against misunderstanding. And uh, that's, uh, I don't think that's the way Jesus preached. I don't think that's the way Paul preached. I don't think that's the way Peter preached. I think they, they just lifted up their voices. What I'm calling, I have a new phrase. I've got to give the preaching lectures at Trinity this fall. And they gave me the title, uh, Preaching in Worship. I'm really excited to work on this because recently my self-understanding, I'm always asking for clarity from the Lord. Who am I? What am I doing? What, what am I supposed to be doing on Sunday morning? Is that all? What am I supposed to be doing? And the, the, the new way I describe what I do on Sunday morning is expository exaltation, which is worship. I don't follow the worship. And I don't bring about the worship. I do worship in my preaching. Expository exaltation. And uh, that's what I think we need. We need need reformed thinkers who are so moved that they don't just write O in their commentaries, but they write O in their their preaching. They, They say, oh, what a salvation. Oh, what a Savior. And, And the people... The people become what they see. Spurgeon used to say, my people come to watch me burn. That's what happens at my church. They tell me. I come in here, I limp in here on Sunday morning, and I just hold up my little torch into your flame. And I walk away, and it goes out by the end of the week, and I come back and I stick it in again. And that's okay, that's fine. I try to teach them how to light their own torch with biblical meditation and prayer, but I know that for, for hundreds of ordinary people, without an explosion of, of uh, passion for God, they're going to just kind of watch TV and just, <laughs> just, just go down. Um. My question relates to discipling children. Um, you speak some of your own passions. And I was wondering if there were some secrets that you could pass on from how your parents questioned you. Um, and also, just helping parents to disciple their children to, to be well Christian. The question has to do with discipling children and whether anything from my background could be shared or how to disciple children to be world Christians. I wish my wife were here. She gives seminars on on world Christian families. And uh, she's going to do one in Indianapolis this summer at the ACMC conference. How many of you have have uh, ever heard of ACMC? Okay, a lot, half of you haven't. Uh, it used to stand for Association of Church Mission Committees. I think it now stands for Assisting Churches in Mission Commitment or something like that. Advancing. Advancing, thank you. Advancing Mission Commitment. And uh, they have conferences around. They're devoted to... Uh, make it, helping local churches become mission-minded, and they have these annual meetings, and I'll do something on worship, and she'll, she's going to do a seminar on that. So she should be here, but I'll do the best I can. Um, I don't remember much of my childhood. 
Um, I ask questions. My wife asks questions about my childhood because she's like, understand why I am the way I am sometimes, which aren't. You're you're being positive, yeah. She's she's usually not being positive. Uh, you know, um, I could give some examples, but I won't bother. I don't remember much except that my my dad was an evangelist and he was gone most of the time, two thirds of the time. My mother was mainly the one who reared me. And uh, we read the Bible every day, and we prayed every night as a family. When Daddy was home, he led, and when Mama was there by herself, she led, and that was probably the most important thing that could happen. There was a rigorous discipline, an expectation that we would do that, and we prayed for missionaries. I can remember the phrase, uh, God bless the missionaries on the home farm field, home farm field. I thought that was one word when I was a kid, (laughs) home farm field. I didn't know what that was, but Mommy and Daddy said it every Night, bless the missionaries on the home farm field. And that, no doubt, lodged itself in my mind and made a great difference. The rigor of reading the Bible, I was given a Bible when I was little, and I still have the Bible I was given when I was 15. And I I love to go back and see the things I underlined. And I remember lying in bed late at night after all the lights were out, and I'd read my Bible and underline it, write things in the margin fun to see what you were thinking when you were 15 years old. Um, And we were very heavily involved in our church, and they saw to it that I was there. One Sunday night, I skipped training union. This is a Southern Baptist church. And I got whipped with a belt by my mother at age, I don't know, 13. I was tall as she was. My mother's 5'2". So that was how serious they took obedience and being where you belong to be on the Lord's day. Um, And they were the happiest people I've ever known. That is significant. My mother and my father sang in the car when we went on vacation. I was like, how many of you grew up in a home where your mother and your father sang duets in the car ever? One, okay? See, that's rare. I I was in a home where my parents sang spiritual songs to the Lord in the car together. I I was in the back seat, and I thought they were boring songs. (laughs) They were not cool at all. I don't even remember them, but I know I loved it because they were happy. They were happy people. And they laughed. Daddy would always bring home jokes from his trip. We'd have the sit-down supper at Monday nights when he got home from his crusades, and he would tell us his new jokes. And my mother would laugh so hard the tears would run down her face. And uh, so I grew up in a home where to be a Christian was to be the happiest people in the world, even if they whip you with a bell. Okay? So that combination was, was great. Uh, and... As far as World Christian goes today, the resources are so many. The kids' version of Operation World is out there. We, for probably six years, used the Global Prayer Digest every morning because the little story was so good for kids. Operation World is not real helpful for kids. We're going to use it this year, and my boys are old enough now, but I, I usually go to the praise and prayer points at the end of the country on Operation World and read a few of them at the table. But for years, we've done something at the breakfast table. The breakfast table is our devotional time as a family. 
and I'll read a text, and we'll read the, the mission thing, and then a boy will pray for the mission thing. We take turns, and, and then I'll pray for the text and the family. So that discipline is there in the evening. Uh, we have devotions, and we read another portion of Scripture, and maybe a conversation will happen. Maybe it'll be brief, and, and we all pray around the circle. Um, we have what we call Bible time for the children to teach them to have their own private devotions so that every morning the boys have Bible time. So we get up, and as we you know, get up at, at uh, 6.30, and you, the, you go to school at 8, whatever it is, and, and we just, this 15 minutes is get up, wash, and, and uh, clean your, make your bed, and this 15 minutes is have Bible time, and this 15 minutes is get your schoolwork together, and then we eat breakfast, and then you're, you're, you're off. So their own personal devotions is built in there. And we did that before they could read. And we use tapes. I mean, what the, the kids' tapes that they have available today are absolutely phenomenal. And the scripture that you can build into a, a child. And then, of course, church is a key part of their lives. And uh, just talking, having missionaries into the home whenever we can. Um, and Noelle has a whole raft of literature that she talks about and strategies that she uses with the boys. She homeschools two of our boys. She has, and now just one. Another? Go ahead, Todd. Um, any hints for those of us around here who would like to uh, continue the process that the youth have part in these, these couple days of keeping missions development at, at this place? Advice for how to carry on that deepening here at, at Westminster? Well, um, if, you, if you don't have representatives in, in powerful places, you know, who are, who are as fired up as you are, then I think uh, pockets of prayer of those who are really carry the burden are going to make a whale of a difference. Um, I don't know how seminaries work and who really holds power and who makes things happen and who establishes the atmosphere, whether it's presidents or administration or faculty or forceful students or whatever. Uh, and I, I don't think it makes any value to politicize the missions anyway. What you want is God to, to move. But if, if, there's a, if there are pockets of people who gather for prayer, like at our church, there are several, but there's one small group in particular that's got to be one of the most powerful groups of people at Bethlehem who have no political power at all. Nobody knows they exist hardly. But they gather every Thursday night to pray for unreached peoples, and they know how to pray. They really do battle for the unreached peoples and the 1040 window and so on. And if that's happening here, the ripple effect has got to be felt. It's two, one group, two or three or four. Uh, and then what you've done seems to me to be great to have this conference. Um, but you, you would know better than I how, to, how things work around here and what influences will carry the day and what, what won't, but prayer is of the essence. Thanks. And um, in the had a little section on um, how you felt that God's love, understanding God's love is convicted of sin more than um, carrying the law. And I'm just wondering where, how you came to that conclusion and what scripture um, well, let me tell the story that I start with in that article. 
which illustrates how it, how it works in my life. I, I said, I feel most sorry for my sins when the sun comes out. And I can remember very clearly the morning where that hit me. Years ago, I was still teaching at Bethel, and Noel and I were at odds with each other, and I, I said something crabby, and she said something crabby, and, and, uh, and to get the anger out, I just picked up the garbage can and walked out to the edge of the road with it where it was supposed to be that morning to be picked up. And as I put it down, the sun came out from behind a cloud. Beautiful sun. And the, I could feel the warmth on my skin and the little breeze blew. And I started to cry because I felt so loved that God in my disobedience and my meanness was reaching down and just taking his breeze and his sun instead of consuming me, which he had every right to do with a bolt of lightning or fire, he just breathed upon me gently and uh, made me real sad for my crabbiness. And I went in and apologized. Heaven did not do that. Now, if I go to the Bible... Uh, I think, I'm trying to think of illustrations, I think that's what the gospel is. I think that's what the gospel is. When you, uh, what does it say in Acts 13? Uh, I, can't, I can't say it exactly, but what you could not be freed from under the law of Moses, he has freed you from. Chapter 13, somewhere. Um, or the woman who is a prostitute there and she's weeping and washing Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair and because evidently she has uh, felt love and forgiveness because he says Be, you have um, loved much because you've been forgiven much. She has felt forgiven and the tears flowed because of the awesome sense of forgiveness that she had. So uh, it's it's the old it's the old uh, uh, Grimm's fairy tale of the sun and the wind. Who can get the coat off of this guy? And the wind and the sun wager with each other. And the wind says, "I bet you I can get it off." And he just and the harder he blows, the more the guy grabs his coat. And then the sun says, "Okay, turn." And he just shines on him. And the guy hmm, he takes his coat off. So the one with power and push made him look like this. And the one who shined upon him made him take his coat off. So I think uh, there's, a, there's a place, therefore, for uh, lavishing the goodness of God on people in the hopes that they will repent and be broken. Now, if you would ask me, where is the place for severity and warning, I would say it's there. Romans 11:20. Uh, take heed to the kindness and the severity of God. And uh, you sometimes say the one and you sometimes say the other. You sometimes warn people that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
And other times you hold out a, a very forgiving and gentle and tender hand to them and say, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's Sinai. <laughs> That's the most lavish statement of the patience and kindness and forgiveness of God square at the center of the so-called uh, covenant of works of the law. So the law itself is uh, impregnated with visions of a God of extraordinary patience and mercy and forgiveness. What else? What about our annual missions conference? Um, I have almost nothing to do with it anymore, except I speak at one of the Sundays. It, it generally lasts about ten days, from a Wednesday through a Sunday through a Wednesday through a Sunday, like that. And uh, we bring in a special guest, preacher for one of the Sundays who also hangs around usually and does a seminar um, and our own missionaries that we support those who are at home get exposure and get to speak there's a thing called Missions in the Manse that we started 10 years ago now March 9 this year will be the 10th anniversary in which I have people come to my house who are remotely considering missions and I move all the furniture out of the living room and dining room haul it upstairs and they sit on the floor, anywhere from 60 to 140 in, in our house, and we sing, and we hear where each person is in their pilgrimage, and we either I speak or, the, or a guest speaks from 7 to 10. Those have been very powerful movers. God used that in 1984 to ignite the movement, I think, and he has blessed that ever since. Um, we usually have a theme that we gather under, and I try to preach to support the theme biblically. Um, there's usually a special offering that we take that goes over and above budget to some special mission project. Um, we usually promote some book or books and try to highlight them and get people reading in particular area of missions or some biography. Um, I can't remember what else. Well, what is your other, or how do you view faith as opposed to the church supporting uh, With joy and support. And do, you, do you find faith, faith to be a, a good way of raising funds? Yeah, I do. Uh, I'm not sure. By faith missions who raise support, you mean people who have to go on deputation, go from church to church until enough people can make enough commitments that they can now go. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I think that's a good way to do it. Because uh, our denomination has done it both ways. That is, we've had a united fund where you give everything to the mission board and then they're on salary and they don't have to stump for their, for their uh, support. And I, I think 
uh, there's not enough accountability that way, and and I think the churches don't get the, the kind of exposure that they would with individual personal accountability. So I, the, the downside, I suppose, is that it's hard, and some missionaries who want to be missionaries may not be good fundraisers. They might be very good missionaries on the field and, and crummy fundraisers. But I, I have a feeling that the body of Christ can sniff out whether a person is a good missionary on the field or not. I mean, they can, we can make mistakes. I mean, the, the big body can make mistakes, and the, and the board up here in the upper echelons of the institution can make a mistake. But in general, I think if a person has the Holy Spirit on them and God is moving in their work, they can come back and tell enough stories that the people will figure that out. Um, and to get there in the first place, well, then you just shut up to the sovereignty of God to open people. And we... We've had stories from missionaries, the Jaegers I think of in particular, who are in their third term now in Guinea, who said the last thing we wanted to do was raise money. We thought that was awful, boring, terrible. We're not fundraisers. We just want to go minister. And when they were done, two years later, they said it was the best thing that ever happened to them. It cast them on God more than anything. It drew out of them uh, things in ministry to churches that they never thought they had within them. It caused them to think through their goals and their their strategies better than they ever had. So they're they're sold that it's it's a, it's a healthy thing for a, a missionary to have to do. Huh? Um, I have some advice for related to, uh, for instance, a pastor of a church who who say. Yeah, mission the question is what what do you say to churches or pastors who say the centrality of missions is good for some churches but not necessarily for all and it's not our thing um, well I don't ask anybody to make missions central make worship central and obedience, whatever the call is. However, what you're really asking is significant, really significant and visible and part of the motor of the church. And I, I think I would tolerate uh, diversity in the uh, priority that's given to missions from church to church and from season to season in one church. I'm mean, Like in my family. We've gone through seasons where um, all of our boys did mission things in the summer. Right now, the 10-year-old is going to do a missions thing this summer. He's going to go to team missions and, in Florida this summer and then off to Tennessee to build a barn or something for some youth group. And I say, great, but with my other three sons, they're not doing anything right now. We went through a season of very high-crest missions engagement a few years ago, and now it's more lean. And it isn't that my heart has changed, it's that circumstances in the family have changed, where those boys are, and I hope they'll all kind of come back to that. And I think you go through things like that in a church. If you go through some crises in a church, missions takes a back burner for a while. Or if, if somebody gets a great vision for a pro-life effort or a great vision for neighborhood evangelism or for disciple, then it's very hard to blow four or five trumpets every Sunday. You just can't. You, you have to 
ask, you know, when this trumpet of let's all be in small groups, let's make this fall the small group fall, get everybody in small groups, it's real hard to drive a missions motor all through that, too. So it, you have to look at a church, I think, over the larger picture and take a five-year picture and say, now where is missions in that five-year picture? And if it's small and insignificant, and, and you ask those people, how many have heard of the 1040 window and no hands go up? How many have heard of unreached peoples and no hands go up? How many have ever heard of Operation World? No hands go up. How many have ever heard of the U.S. Center for World Missions and no hands go up? It's a failure. And these are people who are out of touch with... with uh, the world, or if you're in a denomination, and uh, you could, you know, give another little quiz about who the director is of your mission or whatever, and see, and that all has to flow out of a of a pastoral dream. Somebody asked me the other day, how does a layperson help beget? Maybe you asked me. I can't remember. Um, a mission vision in the church, and I said, oh no, uh, it was James. I can't remember. Um, I said. You've got to get the pastor on board first. And if you can't, you can't make it happen. You just have to pray. Because if, if you don't get the pastor on board, there will be tension and he will feel threatened by these people who think this is so important. And you can do that, depending on your relationship to him, by uh, talking to him, praying with him, giving him books that have made an impact on you, paying his way to ACMC conference, uh, Offer to give, yeah, send him overseas, send him overseas. Uh, but if, if the pastor does not carry a, a, a burden, you know, ask him to preach on it. That was what did it for me in 1983. Preach on missions. Because if you've got to preach on missions, then you've got to read something and you've got to think about biblical texts that relate to missions and, and uh, it'll make a difference. <laughs> The pastoral care of missionaries overseas and at home. Tom Steller at my church is the associate for missions and leadership development and sees himself as the pastor of our missionaries. And we have in our budget a travel budget to send him overseas every year to pastor missionaries. Just to give you an example of what he... Well, at home... He leads a nurture program that's a two-year program that leads missionary candidates who are heading for vocational missions through certain readings, ministry experiences, small group things, psychological assessment, and so on, to try to help them get ready for the stresses that they'll find. Because as you know, most missionary failures don't come because the culture is hard, but because other missionaries are hard. And getting along with each other and family breakdowns and disputes among missionaries and all that stuff and uh, that's really crucial. But um, we had a missionary who uh, got involved in immorality in Bangkok last fall, and uh, he wouldn't get out of it, involved with prostitutes. And his wife and children came back to the church, and they're at our church now. He's still there. Um, I don't know how soon. It was about two or three days after the news we were praying what to do as the elders, and we said, well, let's just send Tom over, talk to him. So he was on a plane within two days. And uh, the people in our church said, here's, the, here's, the, uh, here's your fly-right ticket. I mean, we got people with drawers full of 
fly-right tickets, you know, or whatever you call them, these free tickets that you get for flying 20,000 miles. And they just said, here, go. So he made a pastoral call to Bangkok, turned it around in about 48 hours or 36 hours, and spent 12 hours pleading with this guy to give it up and to come home. So that's how committed Tom is and how committed we are. Uh, the same, we sent him to Guinea the year before that uh, to visit with a, a family that was in great distress. The Jaegers, um, he'd come to Cameroon while you were there? He spent six months teaching in Cameroon, so he's tasted it firsthand. Um, I've been once, and I probably should go more often. Um, but Tom is the pastor of our missionaries, and what he thinks... Well, here's, here's another example. We just had a terrible crisis of moral failure on our staff, and, uh, and a man just had to leave the ministry uh, last Sunday. Well, Tom told me on the phone last night that uh, he has felt burdened that the missionaries should hear this voice-to-voice -voice and not just in a letter. So he's calling all of our missionaries to explain the situation. He and Connie, his, his assistant. Uh, Connie just about runs the mission program at the church now. Tom is kind of a figurehead, but once a woman has been there long enough putting together conferences, putting together the committee meetings, putting together manuals, she just knows so much that Tom just says, how about missions in the glory of God this year? And poof, we have a conference, you know, from Connie. <laughs> so... It's, it's very important, we feel. We've seen a lot of uh, hardship, and, and we're learning through the failures and collapses of our missionaries what they need before they go. They come back and telling us, and then we try to put that in place. So we're just in the process of growing. Okay, good. I, I was hoping you'd ask that. I couldn't believe I could drop those hints and not get anybody to ask. Nine minutes. Uh, I've had conversation with Meredith Klein about this, whose life seems to, ha seems to hang on the covenant of works. Uh, and the reason it does is because he thinks if you jettison the covenant of works, you destroy the atonement because Christ came as the second Adam to fulfill the covenant broken by the first Adam and thus to merit what he failed to merit, namely eternal life for all who are in him. So the structure of, of the covenant of works is that God made a covenant of works with Adam. Adam failed to fulfill it. The second Adam comes and derives the very meaning of his atoning work from the fulfillment of the covenant of works for me so that I can now enjoy the covenant of grace. I think that whole structure is wrong. And the reason I think it's wrong is because I don't think God related to Adam as an employer. I don't think God taught Adam to earn his salvation. That would have been teaching heresy. God did not commend the Galatian heresy to Adam. God was a father to Adam in the garden. He presented him with a glorious garden filled with possibilities, with one little tree 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which represented that little phrase, all you Old Testament scholars judge this, uh, that little phrase, knowledge of good and evil, simply is the Old Testament way of talking about autonomy and independence. It's what you get when you grow up. And so that tree, the eating of that tree represented, I can do it myself, thank you. I don't need a father to tell me any longer what's good for me and bad for me. I can decide for myself. And what, what, what Adam did was fail to trust his father. He didn't fail to pay his employer and earn anything. I feel real strongly about this, can you tell? I don't, I don't like the portrait of the relationship between God the Father and his perfect creature before there was any sin relating as earning. That's not the way it was. That's not Old Testament theology. That's a systematic reconstruction that doesn't fit the text. He was a gracious, loving, lavish father saying, I'll give you everything you need. I'll walk with you in the garden. I will be God to you and you will be my son. Trust me and obey out of faith. This is not works. This is not works. This is the obedience of faith. And the fall was the failure to trust the Father. And it brought great dishonor upon God. It merited hell. And the fall came in and futility filled the earth. Jesus comes not to earn from the employer God what employee Adam didn't earn through works. He came to be the perfect son who trusted his father fully so that when he dies on the cross, he's not paying the debt of an employer. He's making up the glory that we robbed from God through all of our distrust and disobedience and sin. And he's saying in the garden, now glorify yourself in the Son and I will glorify you. So what he does is repair the injury done to the glory of God by showing how much he loves the glory of God that he will suffer the loss of so much glory in order to show how much God loves his glory. Romans 3 25 and 26. God put Jesus Christ forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because he had passed over former sins. It was to show that he himself is just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. The dynamic of what the Son achieved on the cross is that former times God had just passed over sins like David adultery and murder, and Nathan comes and says, you are the man, and David says, I am the man, and he says, your sins are taken away. Poof! I mean, if, if you talk about injustice, any judge that did that to a murderer and an adulterer today, we'd say, you're off the bench. And so God looks unjust, unjust in all this mercy that he has in the Old Testament. So how is he to be seen righteous? How is his righteousness to be vindicated and all the glory that's been trampled on the ground by all these people he's forgiven to be vindicated? And the answer is, the Son says, I have come to glorify my Father. And I will move from infinite divinity and glory down to the role of a horrible a crucified criminal, and in losing all that glory, I will show how valuable it is to restore and repair the injury done to the glory of God by all these 
sinners down here. So I don't think it wrecks the atonement at all. In fact, it shows that what, what was happening on the atonement was not uh, an employee earning something from an employer by works, which is the Galatian heresy. It is rather a son perfectly obeying his father out of trust in his father. And that's what we're called to do now. Ultimately, the covenant of works results in a kind of sanctification that is legalistic, I think. Because the, the way God wants us to obey him is exactly the way Jesus did, namely by trusting him. Jesus had perfect trust in his heavenly Father that he would bring him through this. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He had such confidence that God would bring him through this that he could lay his life down and take it up again. So my whole structure of theology is, is, I would call it, I'm getting this from the unity of the Bible, if you want to read it in its theological precision, get Dan Fuller's The Unity of the Bible, is that uh, the obedience of faith is what was required of Adam. Obedience flowing from faith. It's what Paul refers to in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, the works of faith, or 2 Thessalonians 2.11, the works of faith. That's what he required from Adam, the works of faith. And that's what he required from his son Jesus. And he got them perfectly from Jesus, and he didn't get them from Adam. And therefore, all the glory that need to be restored to the Father and everything that need to be made up in my life, my failures to do the obedience of faith, Jesus did. And so Romans 5 is honored that through the obedience of one man, many were constituted righteous. That's not works. That's the obedience of faith. I mean, that's dumping a lot on you because it calls into question the whole seminary here uh, and the Westminster Confession and 500 years of federal theology. And uh, Frankly, I just don't know where it comes from. I've, I'm reading and I'm reading. I read Owen. I read, I read this thick book by Hepe on Reformed Theology trying to figure out where this thing come from, this covenant of works with Adam. It isn't there. <laughs> that's heavy. One minute. Another little simple question. <laughs> Wilfred. Oh, no, I don't know, Wilfred. 50, maybe 60. Uh, they're, so, they're in so many different categories. There's a tent maker category, and then there's a short term and a medium term category, and then there's a vocational category. We've got, I, I divide them up into seven days to pray for them. Let's see. I think how many are in each group. Well, maybe, maybe it's closer to 50 rather than 60. So about seven each day of the week, seven families. Well, you've been nice to take my uh, ramblings here. Let me pray with you and for you as I go. Father, I, I pray that anything I have said that is imbalanced or wrong, you will strike out of the convictions of these brothers and sisters here. And anything I've said that's true and needs serious consideration, you would cause it to linger, that you would hook it in their minds and in their hearts so that it remains and that it would bear fruit in the years to come. Lord, I pray that this whole time that we've had together would have reverberations for the glory of your name among all the nations of the world. Through Christ I pray. Amen.